Thank you, Taylor, Dr. Mays. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through this great gospel, the gospel of John. And in many ways, today's sermon is kind of like a part two from last week. If you were with us, we looked at a title, a first look at discipleship from the first part of this section in chapter 1. And then today, we're going to look at a second look at discipleship in verses 43 uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 51. And so last week, again, a first look at discipleship, 35 through 42. This week, a second look at discipleship, 43 through 51. So let me read our passage for us, and then we'll bow our heads and pray and get right into the text together this morning. So starting in verse 43, we read this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. <coughs> Excuse me. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the joy of coming together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the singing, the worship, the giving, our fellowship. And as we come to this utmost opportunity to look at the Word of God, I pray that you would speak to us today through your holy Word and that you would remind us that you've called us out of darkness into light to be disciples of Christ. As we take this second look at discipleship, God, I pray that you would encourage us and challenge us to grow in our knowledge of Christ and to live that out each and every day, and it's his, in his powerful and precious name we pray, amen. Well, discipleship is not a new idea in the New Testament period. It is a well-established concept in the Greek world in the centuries that led up until the times of Christ. The word disciple means one who engages in learning through the instruction of another. We would say that a disciple is a student, a disciple is a pupil, a disciple is an apprentice. And the Greeks loved to make disciples, especially in the realm of philosophy. Plato, who is often referred to as the father of philosophy, developed a system of thought that dealt with the issues of epistemology, or how we gain knowledge, and issues that related to the meaning of life. Plato discipled his student, Aristotle, who took what he had learned and built gymnasiums or academies. Now, in the ancient world, gymnasiums were not arenas for sporting events 
as they are today. But they were used for training centers to teach students about Plato's philosophies. Aristotle systematized the process of making disciples. This became known as Aristotelian logic. The students who were trained were gymnatized, or were, which is the Greek uh, verb form of the word gymnasium. So when we think about a gym, we think about, again, working out or having athletic events. Initially, it was used to work out the mind and to grow in your knowledge and understanding of philosophy. And so, so successful was this discipling process that it allowed the Greeks to influence the entire Greco-Roman world. This process was called Hellenization, in which people who were not Greek began to adopt Greek thinking, Greek language, and Greek culture. This was all the concept of discipleship. Now, the New Testament picked up on this concept and put it in a spiritual context so we would know what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Discipleship involves apprenticeship in which the apprentice or the student is brought toward one particular goal. And I would say that that goal, the goal of discipleship, is progressively bringing Christians from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity so that they are able to reproduce the process again with someone else. Did you get that? The goal of discipleship is to take a spiritual infant in Christ and to make them a spiritual mature man in Christ, and then to train that same disciple to reproduce themselves as they began to disciple other people. Our goal in discipleship, unlike the Greco-Roman goal to Hellenize, Hellenize the world, our goal in discipleship is not to Christianize the world, but rather to disciple Christians who are in the world. Our goal is not to make the world adopt Christian thinking, language, and culture, that was the mistake, in my opinion, of the efforts of the majority right. Remember the the moral majority? That's what I'm trying to say. Remember that movement back in the 90s, the the, uh, moral majority thinking, well, hey, we have enough people in this land who think well of God and well of the Bible to maintain some type of Judeo-Christian ethic, and so we'll win politics and we'll win in America if we just do the moral thing. Well, listen to me. I think that that movement failed in America because it failed to emphasize the truth of discipleship. The truth of discipleship is not external, it's internal. It's not changing your behavior, it's changing your heart. It's not emphasizing what you do, it's emphasizing who you are. And I would say this, moralization without transformation is an abomination to God. If you're just changing on the outside, but you're not being changed on the inside by a love and a passion for Christ, that's an abomination. Because that's basically saying I can be right and do the moral thing without a real relationship with Christ, which has completely transformed my life. And so today, what God is looking for is he is looking for true disciples, right? If you change on the outside without changing on the inside, then you are a deceiver, not a disciple, Because it's about life transformation by the gospel of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to be a Christian, then you are also a disciple. We talked last week, there's no such thing as like, I'm of Christ, but I'm not really a disciple of Christ. No, if you are truly of Christ, then you are now called to be his student, 
his pupil, his apprentice, and you're called to be a disciple of Christ. So let me ask you this question this morning. Are you a Christian today? If you would say, yes, I am a Christian today, then let me ask you, are you a disciple today? And then you should be, if you are, you should be working hard at the goal of helping infants in Christ become mature in Christ. And if you're not personally involved in that process, then I want to know why not. Why not? Why aren't you involved in helping others? If you're in Christ, why aren't you helping others actively grow in their knowledge of Christ? And so last week, we looked at, again, a first look at discipleship in 35 through 42. And this morning, we're going to take a second look at discipleship at the text we're looking at here, verses 43 through the end of the chapter. Last week, we talked about how a true disciple makes the transition. And remember, I emphasized on that point, you've got to transition from being around those who love Christ to you loving Christ. It's not good enough just to be around churchy things or people who adore Jesus. You've got to make the transition off of a different person who led you to Christ to Christ himself. We also talked about last week that a true disciple lives a life of evaluation. A true disciple lives a life of submission. A true disciple lives a life on mission. And then lastly, a true disciple accepts his transformation. We ended up with that emphasis on Peter. Remember where it said in verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And I told you that in the original language, that means that Peter's a rock. And if you know anything about Peter, you know that he wasn't always a rock, right? He was the disciple who put his foot in his mouth a lot. He was the disciple who denied Christ along with the other disciples. He was the disciple who really struggled. And yet Jesus saw him in that moment, not for who he was, but for who he would one day become, that he would eventually become a leader in the church, a preacher of the gospel, and be willing to give his own life By the way, church history records for us that he was crucified upside down because he was not willing to die in the same way that his Savior did, right side up. And so we see what Jesus can make out of us as he completely transforms us into being disciples of Christ. So this morning, let me give you five more truths about discipleship. Can I? It's there in your notes, if you're taking notes, there in your outline. Number one, discipleship starts when you follow Jesus. Discipleship starts when you follow Jesus. Again, verse 43 says the next day, that would have been the day right after he called Peter to himself and changed his name from Simon to Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go, uh, to, go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And so here on this next day, we learn that Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This would have been a trip up north towards the northern part of Israel. Jesus had been down in the Jerusalem area. He would have tracked up north. And notice as he's going up north from Judea and Jerusalem up toward the Sea of Galilee, where so much of the New Testament takes place. And here he found Philip, and he simply said to Philip, follow me. Now, you remember last week we talked about the word follow is a combination of two words, the word a particle or a a particle of union and the word road. And so what we said was is that the idea is that literally you are part of the same road. To follow Christ means that you're walking the same path, that you're advancing down the same trail, that you're walking in the same direction. It's 1 John 2, 6. It says that we ought to walk 
just as Jesus walked. And that's what it means to follow him. But let me give you, if I can, three cautions as we think about this idea of following Christ. The first one, and your first blank this morning is this, beware of making the experience of other believers the measure of your own. Beware of making the experience of other believers the measure of your own. Last week, I told you that here in this passage, we see three different types of conversion experiences. Remember that? The first type was the two disciples who came to Christ through the preaching of the word. So some people get saved under the preaching of the gospel. And that was John and Andrew. The second type of conversion is that there were two disciples in this text who came to Christ through the evangelism of a friend or a family member. And that would have been Simon, who became Peter, the brother of Andrew. And now we're seeing that that's going to also uh, happen to uh, Nathaniel, who was evangelized by his friend, Philip. And the third type of conversion experience is one disciple, that would be Philip, came to Christ, not through the agent of a human being, but through the sovereign divine plan of God. Now, in one way, we all come to Christ through the sovereign plan of God, but I'm just saying there's no human agent recorded about Philip's conversion. Christ found him and said, follow me, and Philip followed. Now, what I want to say again is this. Be careful not to make the experience of other believers the measure of your own. You could easily start thinking, well, if I wasn't saved like that person was saved, then maybe I'm not really saved. I mean, when that person gives their testimony, they tell about how they were under the conviction of the word of God as it was being preached and their life was radically changed in an instant. And I don't really have a story like that, you might think. I'm not really sure when I got saved because it was just over this period of time where I reached the end of my rope and I started going to church and I started learning about the Bible and somewhere in that time frame, I believe God saved me. And what I'm saying is that we all have different experiences. You can be saved under the preaching of the word, the evangelism of a friend or family member, or just through coming straight to God yourself through his drawing of you out of darkness into light. Don't spend too much time comparing your testimony with someone else's because it may cause you to doubt whether or not you've been saved in the same way they've been saved. Or you could start thinking, well, that person uh, raised their hand and said a prayer and, uh, and they walked down an aisle and that's how they got saved. And so I should do the same thing in order for me to get saved. Remember, don't look at others' experiences. Look to Christ. It's not about how other people got saved. It's about how did you get introduced to the fact that Jesus loves you, that he died for you that you are a sinner, that you need to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Do business with God between you and him to become a disciple. Stop looking at other people and look directly to Christ and to his word and become that follower that God has called you to be. The second thing I want to say on this, a second precaution about following Christ is this. Be beware of denying another's faith because they are struggling in their walk. Okay, beware about just denying the fact that they're a Christian just because they're struggling. If somebody is struggling in their walk to follow Christ, can you just give them a little room to struggle instead of being so quick to condemn them to hell? Let me show you what this looks like. Somebody's struggling with sin, you hear about it, it's a really dark sin, and you're like, oh my goodness, well, you know what? I'm not even sure if that person's saved. Yeah, I always thought there was something wrong with them. You know, they, they oh, they did that? Oh, really? 
well, you know, there must not be a Christian. You know, there's wisdom in having discernment, is there not? But there's also wisdom in giving grace and giving a little bit of time. And I just feel like as Christians, we're so quick to judge another salvation based on one sin or one struggle that you know they're going through that we start saying things like, well, I don't even think they're saved. Hey, we need to pray for so-and-so. I don't think, did you hear what they did? I don't think they're a Christian. Do you think they're a Christian? And we start getting into this, this, this debate that denies another person's faith. Let me caution us as a church that you would realize that it's not our job ultimately to control that person's eternal destiny. Right? Our job is just to continue to point them to Christ. And the third caution would be this. Beware of affirming everyone who claims Christ but clearly denies God's word. So again, we're trying to balance out points two and three, B and C here. Certainly, we, we don't want the pendulum to swing so far to the other side that we just simply say, well, anybody who claims Christ is automatically a Christian because you know that's not true. We have so many in evangelicalism today who are quick to point to God and even point to Christ, but they don't really know Christ. We have to realize this morning that God is the judge. He will determine who is a Christian and who is not. It's not your job to determine who is a Christian and who is not. It's not your job to preach somebody into heaven or to condemn them into hell. It's your job, and it's my job to point everybody to Jesus. That's our job. Let's just point them to Christ. Let's pray for them. Let's encourage them. Let's challenge them. Let's ask them honest questions. But let's not determine ourselves whether that person is a Christian or not. Now, sometimes, again, we have to make decisions about this at an elder level. If we're going to move to the step of church discipline, where we really believe this person is in such an unrepentant state that we need to follow the command of Christ in Matthew chapter 18. And in a sense, we're declaring that this person, at least right now, doesn't appear to be saved. But we're always careful to say, we don't know if they're saved or not. All we know is that they're acting like an unbeliever. And since they're acting like an unbeliever, we need to treat them like an unbeliever. And at this point, we want to you know, announce this to the church and have you help us pray for them, pursue them, and love them back into a right relationship with Christ and his church. You know, we got to realize that we can't take matters, though, into our own hands. You know, sometimes as a, as a parent of five kids... Uh, We love our children. They do a great job holding each other accountable, encouraging each other. But on occasion, on occasion, we'll have one of our kids who will really let us know about what this other kid is doing, right? And it happens in every family at times. And at times we appreciate that because if one of the kids is like, you know, about to jump off of the stairwell down into the first story, we need to know about that, right? If some kid is like lighting a a, a match, which they don't do because we don't have matches anymore, I was just telling my kids the other day, I was like, do you guys know what a match is? Because they, they've only seen the fire stick, you know, the little candle lighter. And I'm like, Dad, what's a match? I'm like, that's probably better if you don't know. It's just probably better if you guys don't know what a match is. But the idea is sometimes our kids will want to take things in their own hands, and they want to, you know, bring the punishment uh, to another sibling. And so at times, we have to be careful with our kids to say, hey, look, you got to bring that concern to mom or dad. Like, dad will decide who gets the blessing and who's going to get the boom, all right? That's my decision. You just bring that information to us. Let mom and dad 
be the parents. And what I'm saying is sometimes I think we need to let God be God. Let God be the judge. Let him determine what's going on with that person. Our job is to follow Christ and to encourage others to follow Christ and just to give a little room for different testimonies, different conversions, different experiences, and different places in our walk with Christ. I appreciate what J.C. Ryle writes here on this verse. He writes this, quote, the fact before us is a deeply important one. It throws light on the history of all of God's people in every age and in every tongue. There are diversities of operations in the saving of a soul. All true Christians are led by one spirit, washed in one blood, serve one Lord, lean on one Savior, believe in one truth, and walk by one general rule. But all are not converted in one and the same manner. All do not pass through the same experience. In conversion, the Holy Spirit acts as a sovereign. He calls everyone separately as he will, close quote. Well, let me move on, if I can, to a second truth about discipleship. That second truth, again, would be number two. Discipleship continues as you bring others to Jesus. So it starts when you start following Christ, and then it continues as you now are going to be active in helping others follow, come to Christ and then hopefully follow Christ, right? So verses 44 and 45 say, now Philip, so now we're saying he's a believer, he's following Christ, he's, he's ingested this understanding of the gospel, at least to some degree that Christ has revealed himself to him. Now Philip, from, who was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I want to just say on verse 44, Bethsaida was on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. According to verse 44, it was the hometown of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. It was known as a fishing town. In fact, the name Bethsaida means house of the hunter or fisherman. Several miracles were recorded in Bethsaida, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and the healing of a blind man. But even with all of this, Bethsaida appeared to remain largely unconverted by these wonders, and the city was later cursed by Christ along with Chorazin for their unbelief. Now, you may have thought that Peter was from Capernaum, since we seem to have noticed that his mother's house was there and that that was where his fishing business was operated out of. And obviously, as is common today, Peter grew up in one town, but he started his business in another. So he was apparently born in Bethsaida, but he later started working in Capernaum. And the point I really want to make, though, in these two verses is that discipleship continues as, excuse me, as you bring others to Christ. And here's your next blank or subpoint under this second main heading. A, young disciples often make the best evangelists. Isn't that so true? Young believers or disciples often make the best evangelists. Why am I saying that? Because as soon as Andrew comes to Christ, he goes out and finds Peter, and he wants Peter to come to Christ. As soon as Philip comes to Christ, he goes out and he finds Nathaniel, and he wants Nathaniel to come to Christ. And there's just something about our newfound faith that makes us want to share it with others. Think about the time when God saved you. 
and you were radically transformed out of darkness into light, how many of you guys wanted to hide that message under a bushel? You're like, man, my goal is just not to tell a soul. Well, if that was your thinking, then you may not have been radically converted. You know what I mean? If you've been radically converted, how many of you guys were radically converted? You're like, Adam, I remember when I was living in darkness, and now by the grace of God, I'm living in light. I didn't see very many hands go out there. How many of you guys were radically converted? There's a few more. There you go. And what did you want to do? You wanted to tell people about Jesus. You wanted to shout it on the mountain. And there's something about that newfound fervency for God that we see in young converts that some of us who've been saved for a while ought to be put to shame by seeing these young converts that are so quick to tell others about Jesus. I hope that newfound faith of yours never becomes like an old discarded toy. I hope that newfound faith of yours never becomes like that favorite shirt, you know, that shirt you used to wear once, tried to get by with it, wearing it twice a week every week, and now it's kind of found itself to the back of your closet, and you never wear it anymore. You're like, I wouldn't wear that shirt. That's an old shirt. I I hope that that's not what's happening with how you share your faith. I hope it's not like, well, I used to share my faith all the time. But you know, it's been actually several weeks, no, actually months. In fact, I I can't tell you the last time I shared the gospel with anybody. I, I hope that your love for Christ is not growing cold. You know, it's like the best advertisement for marriage, in my opinion, are newlyweds. You know, you see a couple, they just get married, they're like, oh, honey, how are you? Here, hold my arm while we're walking down the aisle of the supermarket. You know, why don't you just hold my arm right here, and let's get this, and we want to do this and that, and you see these, and you're just kind of, you're like, you guys, you guys are newlyweds, right? You guys are newlyweds? People ask Lisa and that all the time. They ask us that. They're like, you guys newlyweds? Not, not as much as they should, because maybe I'm not loving you like I should be, baby. So, but we've been to some places, and people are like, you guys must be newlyweds. That's always refreshing to hear, isn't it? And, and just like you see some of those older couples, they lose their passion and their love for each other. So we're saying, I hope we don't lose our love like that. I hope whether you're a young disciple or an old disciple, whether you were converted yesterday or you were converted 50 years ago, that you would still make a great evangelist, a great discipler who wants to go and point others to Christ. Because as soon as you come to Christ, you ought to continue to bring others to Jesus as well. Another thing I want to say about this would be this. Young disciples are excited to tell you what they know. Young disciples are excited to tell you what they know. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. So he's excited about it, right? We have found him. You know, it kind of, it kind of just an exciting thing here. He's excited about it. And surely Philip may be talking about Deuteronomy 18, 18. Moses talked about this Christ, this prophet that would come. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. Uh, as far as the prophets are concerned, not only was it Moses, but the prophets also talked about the Messiah. He could have been referencing Isaiah 53, where it says, who has believed what he has heard from us, and whom has, and, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so maybe he was thinking of, you know, an Isaiah passage. There's lots of prophecies all through the Old Testament, right, about Christ. I'm thinking about Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for you 
for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Again, a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe he's thinking about Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So I'm, I'm saying here, Philip is remembering these various prophecies of Moses and other prophets about the Christ. And so when he's going to Nathaniel, he's going to him with some authority, not just like, hey, you got to come see this guy. He's like, no, 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 we've seen him of whom Moses and the prophets told us about. This is him. This is really him. You've got to come see him. And so young disciples are happy to share with others all that they are learning about Jesus. But you know what? Young disciples don't know it all. Do they? They don't know it all. They're just new converts. In fact, the next point here says this. Young disciples sometimes don't articulate things just right. Sometimes young disciples don't articulate things just right. Notice after he's rightly said, we've heard him of whom Moses and the, uh, the prophets talked about. He then says, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, it was John Calvin in his commentary who says this at this point about Philip. How small Philip's faith was is clear because he cannot say four things about Christ without including two huge mistakes. He calls him the son of Joseph, and he incorrectly states that Nazareth is his native town. And yet, because he really wants to help his brother and make Christ known, God approves his earnestness and makes it successful. Now, why is John Calvin rebuking Philip at this point? Again, he's simply making the point, maybe Philip was a little bit misleading to say Jesus is from Nazareth. Or maybe Philip was a little bit misleading to say he's the son of Joseph, because while those two things in one sense are true, legally, legally, he is the son of Joseph, but not biologically, and it's more accurate to say he's the son of God, right? Not to say he's the son of Joseph. In fact, you don't, you don't see that reference anywhere else. It's just Philip, just real quick, he's the son of Joseph, no, he's the son of God. Technically, we could also say that Jesus is from Bethlehem, right? He, he was born there, and he was there for, we think, at least a period of a couple of years. It is true that he did grow up in Nazareth. It's not that Philip was wrong. It's just that these two statements could be confusing if they're not clarified. By the way, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that Jesus would be from Nazareth. Did you know that? There's, the word Nazareth doesn't show up in any prophecy in any Old Testament passage. Now, we, we understand Micah 5, verse 2, clearly points at where Jesus would be born. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And so what some people would say is like, well, maybe Nathaniel was like, a little bit later, you know, he says, can anything good from Na- come from Nazareth? He's initially thinking, well, this can't be the Messiah because you're emphasizing he's the son of Joseph and he's from Nazareth. And we're looking for somebody who's the son of God and he's from Bethlehem. And you're telling me he's the son of Joseph and he's from Nazareth. And so it could be that Nathaniel was a little bit distracted with this initial information because it wasn't articulated as clear as it ought to be. Again, we're talking about young disciples 
They want to tell you what they know, but sometimes they say things that aren't quite just right. In fact, I have a pastor, a friend of mine, who tells the story about when he got converted in college, and then he started preaching to like youth groups and students in different uh, places where he grew up. He was preaching a message one time about the widow who was, uh, only had two mites left. Remember that? Two pence, two pennies left. And she gave all she had, and she put it in the offering, and she's praised by Christ for giving all she had. Do you remember that story? And so he's preaching that story, and, he's, and he was preaching from the old King James Version where it said that she had two mites, M-I-T-E-S, two mites. And he didn't know what that word mites meant, and so he just assumed that it meant that she had two mice And so he's preaching this message, and he's like, this lady had two mice, her last two mice, and she puts all she had, her two mice, into the offering. Would you give your mice to Jesus? Would you give them up? People are like sitting out in the congregation, they're like, what is wrong with this guy? Two mice? Are you kidding me? So later, somebody has to go up to him, and of course, he's so embarrassed. But you know, the same thing has happened to you. At some point, okay, maybe you didn't preach that exact sermon, all right? But at some point, you were talking something about the Lord and something about this, and you thought you knew, and then somebody had to come alongside you and say, hey, actually, that's not quite right. That's not quite accurate what you're saying. Let me show you from God's word, right, what the right word would be. In fact, that's what happened to Apollos with Aquila and Priscilla. Remember, they had to pull him aside and better show him more accurate things from the word of God. And so hopefully, as disciples, we are all continuing to grow in our knowledge of God and helping others grow in their knowledge of God and of Christ as we're bringing others into uh, maturity to, in Christ as well. Well, let me move on if I can. Number three, a third thing about discipleship, a third truth, discipleship focuses on experiencing the person of Christ. Look at verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. The first sub point I want to say to you in this next blank would be this, be careful not to be distracted with the details. Be careful not to be distracted with the details. Now, I might sound like I'm being counterintuitive because I just told you I was being a stickler about Philip saying that Jesus was the son of Joseph and from Nazareth. But there is, in a sense, that sometimes we get too distracted with those details. Let me explain. Notice how Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Judeans down in the Jerusalem area did not have a whole lot of respect for the Galileans. Now we're seeing that even the Galileans, because Nathaniel himself will find out was from Cana, which was also in Galilee, and as a Galilean, he despised other Galileans. This would be like, you know, some pe- sometimes people from the Northeast despise Southerners. Hey, I grew up in the South, and sometimes people up from the New England area think that the South is a bunch of rednecks, and, but even when you get down in the South, parts of the South disrespect other parts of the South. So we blame any problems we had from Georgia on Alabama. Alabama blames it all on Mississippi. Mississippi ain't got nowhere to turn. So they ended up being the butt of everybody's joke, right? But sometimes uh, the, we get distracted in these details. And Nathaniel, Nathaniel has is, is got this idea like, can anything really good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was located in central Galilee. It was, the, it was for the most part, an obscure town uh, made up of blue-collar workers who kept to their own business. Now, as I mentioned already, while Nazareth was not 
specifically prophesied about in the Old Testament, at least not in print. While there's no written record of the Old Testament prophecy about Nazareth, there was a spoken prophecy about Nazareth that was given at some point. And we know that from Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Matthew 2, 23 says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So there's a verse that shows there was somebody talking about Nazareth. We just don't have it recorded in Old Testament-inspired text. And so how did Philip respond to Nathaniel's first impression, which was a pretty negative reaction to Jesus, right? Philip's coming to tell him about Christ, tell him about this is the one who Moses and the prophets prophesied. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's first reaction was he's just kind of getting bogged down in all of these details. And so Philip did a very wise thing here. Philip simply said... Come and see. You see that at the end of verse 46? Come and see. And that's our next blank there. Be ready to point people to Christ for themselves. When people say to us, there's no way that could happen, or there's no way Jesus could change me. I've been this way my whole life. Or when people say, I just can't believe what you're telling me. Maybe instead of getting lost in all the details of some of their distracted um, arguments, Maybe what we should do is follow Philip's example and just say, hey, why don't you just come and see? Why don't you come and see Christ? I think a lot of times we get too distracted in important technical arguments that lead us away from the real issue. We start talking about politics. We start talking about creation, abortion, homosexuality, the authority of the Bible. And sometimes we forget just to point people to Jesus. You'll never win them over by a separate argument than the gospel. Only the gospel will save somebody and help them see the truth about each and every one of those issues. And so if someone has questions about Christ or the Bible, I think a better way to approach them instead of getting lost in all those arguments would say, come and see. Have you ever read the Bible for yourself? Have you ever personally examined the life and the teachings of Jesus? And most of the time, those people, if they're honest, will say no. They were just like, well, you know, there's a lot of people who doubt the Bible, and there's a whole lot of contradictions in the Bible, and I could never believe the Bible because scholars and science have proven it's not valid. Okay, well, have you ever examined Christ? Have you ever read the Gospel of John? Have you ever got to try to get to understand what Jesus is saying when he teaches this or that? Maybe what we should say is just come and see. A.W. Pink writes on this verse, quote, He invited his brother to come and put Christ to the test for himself. This is the wise way. Do not be turned aside by the objections of the one to whom you are speaking, but continue to press upon him the claims of Christ, and then trust God to bless his own word in his own good time. Too many of us are moving outside of the scripture into human arguments to to try to convince people to come to Christ. And what I'm saying is, don't get so lost in the details, point people to Jesus. The fourth truth about discipleship is this. Number four, discipleship reflects the sovereignty of God. And your next blank under that one says, Jesus knows who you are. Jesus knows who you are. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, An Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now Jesus, being fully God, is omniscient. 
He knows all things. He knows what's within a man. And Jesus knew that Nathanael was a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This word uh, for deceit is the word dolos. This word means deceitful or duplicitous, D-O-L-O-S, dolos, not doulos or being a slave to Christ, but dolos. It means duplicity or deceitfulness, being something other than you are. And in contrast to the Pharisees and the scribes who were often called hypocrites by Christ, this Israelite was true blue. What you see was what you get. The King James Version of the Bible says that the Nathaniel was an Israelite in whom there was no guile. Remember that word? There's no guile. There's no deceit in him. He is true. Jesus knows exactly who you are. And in Hebrews 4.13 we read, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And just like Jesus knew exactly the character of Nathaniel, Jesus knows your character. Now, this could be a reference to Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob deceived Esau, and he took his birthright. And when Esau came to Isaac to receive his blessing, we read this in Genesis 27:35. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Now, in the Septuagint, they inserted there the same Greek word, dolos, the idea of that, that uh, Jacob was deceitful. And so what we're seeing here is instead of being deceitful like Jacob was, instead of being deceitful like the Pharisees were, instead of being deceitful like we could all tend to be at times, this man, Nathaniel, had integrity. Jacob was known as a deceiver. He deceived Esau, deceived Isaac, and later deceived his father-in-law Laban. But Nathaniel is not a deceiver. He's a man of integrity, a man of character, and a time when so many Jews couldn't be trusted, Nathaniel was a man with no guile. I wonder how Jesus would speak of you this morning. If he were to see you and talk about you, would he say that you're a man with guile and a deceiver? Are you hiding something? Is there something this morning? I'm being honest with you. This morning, I've been a pastor long enough to know there's a lot of people hiding a lot of things. So let me just ask you this morning, is there something this morning that your wife needs to know? Is there something this morning, wife, that your husband needs to know about? Is there something this morning, teenager, that's going on behind your parents' back and you are a deceiver? Is there something, young child, that you're doing that your parents don't know about? Because the truth is, Psalm 32.2 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And this morning, I want to challenge you with this reference of how Jesus examined Nathaniel and ask you, would Jesus say the same of you? Because if you've got something you're hiding this morning, this is a great time to come out with it. If you've got something you're hiding from the Lord, the Lord already knows. He knows your heart. This is a great Christmas season, a little extra time in relationship building for you to come clean with your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, your child, and to come clean so that you could be a man or a woman in whom there is no deceit. Not only does Jesus know who you are, he also knows, your next blank, what you have done. He knows what you have done. In verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I'm kind of given a negative connotation here, and really the text is a positive one. 
What he says about Nathaniel is positive, and this reference to, to him being under the fig tree, also very positive. In fact, some would say this expression, I saw you under the fig tree, refers to a place of safety and leisure. Others say the fig tree was a place for meditation on Scripture. Still others say it was a place of prayer. And so, of course, it is speculation to know exactly what Jesus meant when he says, specifically, I saw you under the fig tree, for that information would only be known by Nathaniel himself. The focus of the text, however, is not on what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. The focus on the text is on Jesus's divine knowledge of all people to know their character and all their doings. And here is the good news this morning. Jesus knows you, he sees you, he knows where you've been and where you're going, and he still loves you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, if you've been under the fig tree or someone else, Jesus looks at you, he sees who you are, and he calls you out of darkness into light. And let me tell you something, whether you're hell's worst sinner or whether you're a church-going child, you still need to come away from where you are into a relationship with Christ. The fig tree won't save you. Your sin won't save you. Your pedigree won't save you. Only Christ will save you. And he calls hellions and he calls saints, people who appear to be saintly, out from where they are and they still have to be called to Jesus. Don't you appreciate that about our Lord? Whether you're Saul, who's murdering people, who gets knocked off of his horse on the road to Damascus, or you're this, again, goody two-shoes Nathaniel, you still got to get called out of where you are into a relationship with Christ. Don't bank your testimony on the fact that you've been hanging out under the fig tree, all right? Rather, come to Christ and bow to him as Lord. One last truth about discipleship, and this is the most exciting one, and I'm just going to have to give you a summary of it, all right? But our last truth is this. Discipleship displays the divinity of Christ. Here's what we're saying here. A true disciple proclaims the truth about Christ. Look at verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And so we see here that for whatever reason... Nathaniel gets converted, right? In verse 49, he actually gives three bold proclamations about the person of Christ. Here's the first one. He confesses Christ's prophetical office. He confesses Christ's prophetical office. You say, Adam, where are you getting that from? Well, he does at this moment call him rabbi, which means teacher, but it could be that he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the great prophet. He is the rabbi. He is the prophet who is coming, the one that was prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18, 18. Secondly, he confesses Christ's divine nature. Notice he calls Christ, not the son of Joseph, but he calls Christ the son of God. This title identifies Christ's divine nature because Jesus is divine, because Jesus was without sin. Only Jesus could serve as our high priest. Third, he confesses Christ's kingly role. He calls him the king of Israel. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the priest. And Jesus is the king. Remember, it was the wise man that we read about in Matthew 2 who came looking for him who was born king of the Jews. They brought him gifts fit for a king. And so here, in a sense, Nathaniel is affirming Christ's prophetic office, his priestly office, and his kingly office, which could only be fulfilled by the Messiah. 
A second point I want to make, B, a true disciple will grow in his knowledge of Christ. So Nathaniel gets it right in all three accounts in verse 49, but in verse 50, notice he says, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now what does Jesus mean? He's, just say, he's saying to Nathaniel, you mean just because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree, you became a believer? You're going to see a lot more than that. You're going to see a whole lot more. So what does he mean when he says, you will see greater things than these? Here's three possible thoughts about that. Number one, to him who has, more will be given to him. When you know Christ, Christ will give you more and more information about himself. You will see him working more and more in the major areas of your life and in the minor areas of your life. You will see him more and more of Christ in your thoughts and all of your actions. Christ reveals more and more and more of himself, not to the skeptical, but to him who believes. Second thing that this statement could mean, to him who believes, the conviction of the gospel will grow in him. To him who believes in Christ, the conviction to honor Christ and the gospel truth will grow more and more in all the areas of your life. The things you once did, you will no longer do. The things you used to think were boring, reading your Bible, praying, going to church, are now brimming over in your life because you're getting more and more of Christ as you grow day by day in your understanding of Christ and his word. And that kind of summarizes with the third one, number three. To him who has faith, the revelations of Christ will birth, burst forth until glory. When you have a genuine faith in Christ and obey him, he will show you more and more of himself through his word. In fact, I love this verse. Jot down John 14, 21. Jesus says, John 14, 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What he's saying is, if you love Christ and you're following Christ, he will reveal more and more of himself to you. And so a true disciple will proclaim the truth about Christ. He will grow in his knowledge of Christ. And then last, or see there in your outline, a true disciple will see Jesus as the link to heaven. Now you got to see this. We just got one verse left, but you're going to have to work with me, all right, for just maybe three or four minutes. Check this out, verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about in this last verse as he says this to Nathaniel? Well, number one, followers of Christ have their faith strengthened by the angel's activity. It is no hidden truth that the angels have been very active in descending and ascending with Christ. Let me tell you what I mean. It was the angels who were there. Uh, descending with Christ to earth and the angel Gabriel to give the birth announcement to both Mary and Joseph. It was the angels who descended to Christ on earth and appeared to the shepherds and told them that they're going to go find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. It was the angels who descended to earth and were present with Christ after the temptation in the wilderness to attend to his needs. It was the angels who descended to earth and were there at the empty tomb to proclaim that he is no longer here. 
So the angels had descended, but the angels had ascended with Christ as well. It was at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing up into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, whom is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So I'm just saying part of what's going on here is we're just being reminded that the angel's activity of ascending and descending together with Christ could be a possible emphasis. But look at number two and number three. Students of God's word would well remember the account of Jacob. Now remember, we've already had a tie into Jacob earlier saying Nathaniel is not like Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver. Nathaniel is a man in whom there is no deceit. Remember that? Well, this passage, and you're going to have to just turn here, right? Genesis chapter 28 and verse 12. Here's the famous story about Jacob and the dream that he had about the ladder that was being held up to heaven. Remember that story? We'll just have a chance to look at this one verse, but I want you to see it, if you can, with your own eyes. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 12. And he dreamed, speaking about Joseph, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth at the top of Uh, And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Okay, you remember that story? He goes on to talk about how God says, I am the the, the Lord of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I'll give... Uh, this to your this land to your offspring, and behold, uh, you, you will uh, I will not leave you until I've given you what I've promised you. Look at down at verse 17, and this is Jacob's response: How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the what? The gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. Some commentators say that this passage of Scripture, uh, this passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 28, is what Nathaniel was meditating on when he was under the fig tree. So when Nathaniel was under the fig tree in a nice, safe place, in a place of prayer meditation, it could be he's meditating on this passage, Jesus shows up, and he starts to declare to him that passage and the purpose and the meaning of that passage. And what's the purpose and the meaning of that passage? Number three, disciples of Jesus Know Jesus as the only ladder which links earth to heaven. God told Abraham years ago about land, seed, and blessing. And now this saying of Christ is partly fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is now affirming his covenant through Christ. Jacob's name was changed to Israel who was God's first son, and they failed to adequately represent the gateway to God on earth. God's greater son, Jesus, will never fail. He is the gateway to heaven. He is him on whom the latter links heaven and earth. The angels ascend and descend. In other words, the access from heaven to earth It's not through some ladder and some dream that Jacob had back in Deuteronomy. That was a prophecy that Christ is now giving us the fulfillment of, that he's the ladder. He's the way. He's the gateway to heaven. It comes through Christ, and it comes through Christ alone. What an amazing truth. You see what happens again when you hang out with Christ? He begins to reveal more and more and more of his truth to us. 
And so as we close this passage this morning, let's be encouraged again by the character of Nathaniel as reported to us by J.C. Ryle. He writes this, Let us pray that we may be of the same spirit as Nathaniel, an honest, unprejudiced mind, a childlike willingness to follow the truth wherever the truth may lead us, a simple, hearty desire to be guided, taught, and led by the Spirit, a thorough determination to use every spark of light which we have, are a possession of priceless value. A man of this spirit may live in the midst of much darkness and be surrounded by every possible disadvantage of his soul. But the Lord Jesus will take care that such a man does not miss his way to heaven. In other words, Nathaniel was not going to miss his way to heaven because Jesus made it known to him. I wonder if you're here this morning, do you know the way to heaven? Do you know the gateway to heaven? Are you missing it by being caught up and distracting things? Or are you seeing Christ this morning for who he is? I call you this day to place your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can save you from your world of hurt and pain and misery and self-advancement. Only Christ can change you. It's He is the only way to heaven. And so this morning, if you've been checking out things about Christ, but you don't know Christ, we call you to be a disciple. We call you to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me give you these take-home questions if I can, and you can go through these maybe with your family later today. Are you a true disciple of Christ who follows his every word? Are you? Are you a true disciple of Christ? We need to be getting used to, not just saying I'm a Christian, but say, you know what, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a disciple. Are you a disciple? Because that places an emphasis on something more than, uh, you know, did I just have my fire insurance, but am I really following Christ? Number two, are you a Christian indeed in whom there is no deceit? Let me tell you something. If you don't know Christ this morning and you're in sin, that cannot be true of you. It's only by the righteousness of Christ, if you are in Christ, that that could be true of you. Are you a Christian indeed in whom there is no deceit? And then third, are you going to see greater things as you experience greater growth? In other words, if you're here today and your walk with Christ is a little stale, your quiet time is kind of dried up a little bit, let me remind you, this is a great season around the advent of Christ for you to say, you know what, I'm going to take a little extra time this Christmas and I'm going to spend some time with Jesus. And I'm going to ask him to show me things through his word that I know not. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to teach me and to help me be committed to Christ, not out of that because I have to, but out of that idea of I want to. I want to see Jesus. I want to be a disciple of his. I want to be truly converted. And I want to be in the process of discipleship, helping others who are infants in Christ mature in Christ and then reproduce themselves. That's what discipleship is all about. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. So, Father, thank you for these two looks at discipleship, both last week and again this week. We're just encouraged, God, with this topic of discipleship that probably we don't spend enough time in the church really examining all that discipleship includes. And so, God, thank you this morning for the privilege of looking at earlier from last week, John the Baptist, and then these five new disciples with John and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And so, God, I pray that as we just reflect on these texts and even this sermon this morning, that, God, that you would allow us to see Christ in all of his glory 
and that you would cause us to want to be more faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus, that we would be so excited about the ladder to heaven on whom the angels descend and ascend so that we could see that Christ is the way, the truth and the light. He is the gateway to heaven. And so, God, would you call sinners out of darkness into light? And would you this morning help those who have seen the light to live it out every moment of every day, especially throughout this special season. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.